If you would, open up your Bibles or electronic device to Malachi. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you reach Matthew, uh, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Uh, you went a little bit too far, uh, but you can um, find that, the last book of the Old Testament. And you know what? Um, uh, doing youth work and stuff like that, we always told teenagers it is not a sin to look in the table of contents to find a book of the Bible. Okay, same thing is true for adults, all right? And if your neighbor makes fun of you for using the table of contents, you need to find another seat in the sanctuary, all right? So Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. There's no shame in going to the table of contents to find that. Uh, We will be here for a couple of weeks, actually uh, a good part of the summer. And uh, man, Malachi's just got a great message. As I was studying and preparing for this message, um, it was interesting. Malachi kind of speaks like a love song, if you will, but more like a broken love song. And so my whole goal for the week was to find a song that didn't speak about love. And I mean, through Pandora and Spotify, and I even have stacks of these things called CDs, and um, even a few cassette tapes here and there. Um, And some of you have eight tracks and records, and um, that's cool too. But uh, you can kind of go and you can look in in all of this uh, genre, and and you'll find that that pretty much music carries the same undertone, doesn't it? It's all about love, like either love is good or love is broken. doesn't matter what genre that you look in. Bethany, my wife, is a classically trained pianist, and I I found that even if you don't have lyrics behind it, uh, if you would do some research, you'll see that even classical composers wrote with broken hearts, right? Boom, 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 boom. I'm mad at you. <laughs> and so, um, and so Malachi kind of speaks like this broken love song, uh, but it's interesting. It's not um, God uh, that, that is, uh, excuse me, it's not the people uh, that have the broken heart God does because of what the people did. And so I think Malachi is, is really uh, a good message because it's going to speak very uh, much to us. Let me just give you a couple fast facts on the book of Malachi before we start uh, in with a couple of these verses. Malachi's name means my messenger, and that's important to know because in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, names carried weight and carried meaning. And people were named with the basis off of what they did a lot of the times. And so Malachi is God's messenger. He is actually the last messenger of God in the Old Testament. Malachi is going to prophesy about God and what God has in store for the people in about 420 before Christ. And he prophesies alongside of a guy named Nehemiah. So if you find a commentary on Malachi, it's, it's most likely that you're going to see that Nehemiah's name is going to sit right next to uh, Malachi. And so we see that these guys are going to prophesy or they're going to teach. And we don't really know a whole lot about Malachi, his family line, or, or anything about him because he's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. But we do know that he prophesies with Nehemiah about a couple of things that are really important to our culture. For example, he's going to talk about the corruption of priests. In the, first, couple of, in the chap, first chapter and into the second chapter, he's going to talk about how twisted and corrupt priests are. And we can kind of understand that because we know there's some corruption in the church today. Not necessarily our church, I think we're doing pretty good. Uh, but on the general side, if we were to talk about the global church, we have some issues and some problems. And then he's going to talk about unbiblical marriage and what does marriage look like? What are we supposed to be like as spouses, husband and wives? How are we supposed to act? If we have a relationship with God, what is our marriage supposed to look like? 
In Malachi and Nehemiah's time, uh, marriages were corrupt and they were going through a lot of issues. And it's a lot like our society today. He's going to talk about social injustice as the people are underneath uh, wrong um, political leaders. Imagine that. There's, uh, there's corruption in politics. Who knew? And then um, he's going to talk about how we spend money. Now, if that's Malachi's message and his message to the people, what's going on with the people? Well, we see in the 5th century that Jews essentially have just come back from exile to, uh, to Judah. They're rebuilding their church or what we would call a temple, okay, in the Old Testament. And they're also rebuilding their homes. Life isn't easy. They're struggling. There's massive political corruption and problems. And these people are going through a lot of hardships. And they're also farmers and they're realizing that their harvest uh, doesn't produce because there's bad locust problem. And so those of you who are in agriculture, some of our farmers here today, you could probably resonate with that because you've had good seasons of fields that have been productive, but you've had seasons where fields just didn't produce. And it caused some frustration, and it's the same for the people who are living here. People are apathetic and resentful towards God. They had all of these Old Testament promises about who God is and what God was going to do, and it seemed like those promises weren't coming true. Have you ever been in that situation in that boat? where you read the Bible sometimes and you know all the promises of God and you know kind of what it says about uh, what he's going to do and how he's going to do it and you feel like you wake up in the morning and you're like, God, why haven't you done those things yet? And so that's the people. They come into the point to where they're apathetic and they're resentful towards God and his commands. And, and so here we have a people who are just essentially apathetic. Think of it like this. If we could take the Jews of that time period, we're going to call them Israelites, okay, and we could put them right here, and, and then we could put God on this side, um, we would kind of view it like a marriage counseling session. We'd look over at, at the Jews and we'd say, how's, how's life going with God? And they would say, fine. And some of you married people are like that, aren't you? We're good. Not great. Fan in the flame. Not happening. We're not on fire by any means, but we're fine. And then we look over here at God, and we would say, God, how's your relationship with the Israelites going? And he would say, man, my people are unaware of how much I really, truly love and care about them. If I were to disappear, they wouldn't even know. My heart is broken towards them. There's the love song. I love them so much, but they don't love me in return, and I don't understand why. I've given them so many things, and my heart is broken. And so the overall theme that God is going to confront his people with is their apathy. And he is going to talk uh, 47 out of 55 times in the Bible about calling the people to hold on. And it's interesting here. God responds to the people who are apathetic towards him in an attitude of love. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't get mad. He doesn't smite them. He doesn't push them down. He says, listen, I love you. I want you to know how much I love you. And I want you to realize I'm going to renew your perspective. I'm going to reestablish hope. And I'm going to motivate you to see a new covenant that I'm going to draw with you. And we know that that's going to be Jesus Christ. 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here comes Jesus. And Malachi's prophetic message comes true. Let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word and to teach it to the people who are gathered here. And I thank you for the opportunity that we had this past week to walk through this text together and the way that you uh, impressed it upon my heart, uh, revealing very clearly how apathetic I can become with the scriptures and with my relationship with you. And I thank you that you fan the flame and that you give us an opportunity to be revitalized and restored and, um, and realize just the error of our ways, uh, but the depths of your love at the same time. 
And so I pray uh, for clarity this morning, that the message would be very clear, but that our hearts would be really um, in line and in tune with what you have to say to us, and that they would be soft to your word, and that we would be changed, that we would move out of this sanctuary that we're gathered um, this morning, and we would put into practice some of the things that we know to be true based off of your word. God, I love you. I thank you for your son, Jesus, that Malachi prophesied about, and the fact that his uh, prophecies came true, that we have, a, we have a, a great God who gave his only son, and that we can have a relationship with him through faith. We love you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for your death, and for your resurrection, and the fact that you're ruling and reigning still, and for the gift of the free, uh, the free gift of the Holy Spirit that convicts us and guides us and teaches us. May he work here today, too, as well. In your name we pray, amen. Malachi chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 1, it says, The oracle... Now, your Bible might say burden, okay? If it says burden, you got a good translation. Mine says oracle, so my translation's kind of broken. It says the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I was just kidding about that. It's okay. My, my translation's fine. I'll explain it in a second. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Let's pause for a second here and realize that the people had become apathetic towards God. Now, if I were to look at you today and I would say, how is your relationship going with God? What would you tell me? Maybe you would look at me and say, we're doing great. We're doing really, really good. And I would say, yes, good job. Keep going. But some of you might be like Israel, right? You might kind of close your hands and you'd be like, eh, we're, we're, we're fine. And I would say, well, if your relationship with God is not good, uh, it, it, do you hate him? And you'd go, whoa, 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 Pastor Jordan, nobody said that I hate God, right? Uh, let's not go down that road. Let's not travel down that ab- uh, avenue. And I would say, well, the opposite of, of love is hate. And you would say, no, 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 I don't hate God, not by any means. I mean, I know he sent his son Jesus on the cross, and he died on my sin, and I got an Awana badge when I was in sixth grade. And man, right, life is good uh, in regards to me knowing about God's promises, But you know what? That love's just kind of grown cold. So this message this morning is for people kind of who've walked with God for a long time. The opposite of love would be apathy for us. And we've just kind of grown cold. None of us would say we hate God, but maybe we would say that we're apathetic towards him. How does that get to be that way? Well, it happens when you go through the motions of being a Christian. For example, I go to church every week. I'm essentially a good person in my job, and I'm really nice to the guy at work who I don't like. Right? That's me being a Christian, and I've done this for years and years and years and years and years, and I'm kind of starting to get a little bit apathetic because it doesn't seem like God's promises are coming true. It's like a marriage, you know? The passion's just leaked out all after all these years. Now, go back to the text. He says, I have loved you, okay? And in the Hebrew, that means not just that I have loved you, because we would think that that love stops, but that love keeps going, I have loved you. And in the Hebrew, it would say that I continue to love you. And here, the people, ready for this? Look at God and they say, God, but how have you loved us? Are you out of your mind crazy? I mean, if I looked at my kids and I said, hey, I love you and I continue to love you. And my kids look back at me and they say, daddy, but how do you love me? Oh boy, the wrath of daddy mucks coming down in the family of God, right? I mean, especially after we've taken care of them. Some of you know this to be true, don't you? Because you've raised kids and they've gotten into the high school years and then they went into the college years and they completely abandoned you. Some of our older generation knows this all too well. Where we have 
kids who have gone and they looked at us and they just said, listen, I understand that you provided for me, took care of me for all of those years, but I want nothing to do with you. I mean, come on, mom and dad, how have you really truly loved us? That's what the people are telling God. And the people are so focused on the problems that they're oblivious to God's love towards them. And that's what happens for us, doesn't it? We get so focused on situations and circumstances that we forget how much God loves us. How do we become apathetic? That's the question on the table. How did the people become apathetic uh, uh, towards God? Number one, and it's right in the very first couple of words, they forget the urgency of the message. Now that word oracle should be changed over to burden in your text. If you have that, I literally crossed it out in my Bible and put burden up above it because it's a better translation. And this burden that Malachi has, okay, is the same burden that Zechariah used in chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 12, verse 11. It's a heavy message. When we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's a good burden to bear the weight of God's word. And when God gave Malachi and the prophets a message to be delivered with urgency, they received it well, and they didn't forget that the message needed to be used. And so it must be with us. Therefore, I gave to you that you should receive it and pass it along. That's what the Bible says. That this is a message of urgency. The first way that the people became apathetic in their relationship with God was they forgot about the urgency of the relationship that they had with the Almighty. And so it is with us, right? Some of us came into church. We got baptized. People applauded for you. Yay, we're so excited. And then the applause died down. You got all the promises of God in your head. And all of a sudden, those promises aren't starting to come true. And people aren't looking at you anymore. And your spouse is looking not, a little, not as good as she did or he did a couple of years ago. And your job's not looking as good as it did a couple of years ago. And you look at God and you say, I'm so apathetic towards you. And he but I gave you a message that was good that brought you into relationship with me and there's urgency for you to share that message with other people and build up other people in the church. How do we become apathetic towards God? We forget the urgency of the message and the weight of the burden in which it was delivered to us. And that's where the people, that's where their foundation lies. That's where some of us are at. We forgot that the gospel needs to be communicated, not only to the lost, but also to those who are found because it builds up the church. I consider it pure joy, Paul says, and our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, I said it before, but look at this. The people are going to, number two, focus on circumstances over purpose. Nehemiah had just led the people to rebuild the walls. And so we have 100,000 Jews, roughly, who are back in the land, and they're unprotected. Okay? The Jews in the Old Testament are constantly under threat that we're going to go back into captivity. That's their biggest worry. Okay? That people are going to come, and they're going to seize their land, and they're going to bring them back into captivity. We don't have to worry about that in today's age, but they were worried about that. They're underprotected, and they're underneath um, ungodly leadership in government. Farms weren't producing, like I said, because of drought. You can see that in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. And here, the promises from prophets of a better life to come are not happening. And so we're focused on problem, focused on problem, focused on problem. How many of us do this? There's a problem with the government, Jordan. And there's a problem with political leaders. They're all corrupt. 
There's a problem with my crops, Jordan, and it's damaging to our family. There's problems for us as we're trying to rebuild our home. Circumstances over purpose. When the people focused on problems, it consumed them instead of God's purpose for them. Knowing God had purpose in all things gave eternal perspective, and Paul knew this in the New Testament. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I was crucified, that's a problem, with Christ, not a problem. I no longer live now, Christ lives in me. That's a solution with an eternal purpose. The life I now live in this body, I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. How do we become apathetic? How did the people become apathetic? They forgot about the burden of the weight of the message that God had given them in a relationship with them. They focused on circumstances instead of purpose, that I am here for a reason. If you go up into the youth room, we have it on the wall. I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. We have purpose in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't focus on situations and circumstances because that will always lead us to depression. It will lead us even further to apathy. But if I know my eternal mindset, which is Christ is going to work through these problems, issues, situations, circumstances, hardships, and I'm going to live forever with him, things on this side of heaven start to become a little dim. Third thing, they drifted into routine over relationship. In the study, I found that the people had not turned defiantly against God. Let me tell you something. The people are doing a good job. The Israelites are doing a phenomenal job. They're going to the temple. We're rebuilding your church, God. We're rebuilding your your place where we're going to worship you. They're doing all the things that they're required to do. If you look at the history behind Malachi, you'll see that they're offering sacrifices in a good way. Well, kind of. We'll get to the priest in a little bit. But they're going through the rituals that Moses had had prescribed to them. And they drift into routine religion instead of relationship with God. Are you there? Are you in routine religion instead of a relationship with God? These people follow God's program but lost touch with his person. How has God loved us when we're the ones that are doing all the work? You ever feel that way? God, how do you love me when I'm the one who's doing all the heavy lifting? I do my devotions, God, every single day. I pray to you every single day. I spend time with you, God, and it just doesn't feel like you're responding back to me. You know, this is interesting. Uh, I can kind of resonate with this. Bethany and I, when we started dating, um, (laughs) we used to tell each other that we liked each other. And we thought that was fitting. I like you. And she said, I like you too. And I said, man, that's nice, right? And then we realized uh, that as we kept kind of drifting into this relationship and I was convincing her that I was going to be her husband in the future years, um, she, she said, I like you a lot more. And, but then we realized that love didn't kind of come into that picture. And let me tell you why. Both of us had been hurt from that word love in the past. And so it was easier for us to just say, I like you. On social media uh, a couple years ago, it was for a birthday or Christmas or something like that, I said, I like you. And they, uh, somebody commented, you like her, you don't love her? And I realized that we reserve that word for special occasions. So Bethany looks at me and she says, Jordan, I love you. I stopped dead in my tracks. And I'm like, oh, yeah? All right. I love you too. That's what we do. Okay? And it's good because that word carries weight. And let me tell you what happens, those of you who are in love. You do this with your significant other, don't you? 
You hang up the phone with them or you watch them walk out of the house. What do you say? I love you. But does it carry the same weight as it did when you walked down the aisle and you looked at them and said, I love you on your wedding day? I would say no. You might think so in your heart, but you've got maybe a little apathetic towards them. And so we get that way with God, don't we? Where we say, God, I love you, but it's in passing. And we need to stop and realize that there's weight behind the words that we say. And so I would encourage you, those of you who are in love, right? Stop and look at your spouse as you walk out the door tomorrow morning and be like, hey, I love you. And they're going to say, I love you too. And you're going to hold their hand and go, no, I really love you. See, that's going to carry a lot more weight. When we fall into routine instead of relationship, uh, that's what happens. It becomes apathetic. So that's how the people got apathetic, okay? Forgot the urgency of the message, focused on uh, circumstances over purpose, and then drifted into routine instead of relationship. We've done it. We've all been there. So my question is, okay, what is uh, the solution to that apathy, okay? Watch this. He gives two illustrations. Uh, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are scattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now, when you first read that, you're probably going to sit there and go, huh? (laughs) What are we talking about, right? What did you just say? You're talking gibberish. (laughs) When Malachi says, and let's break this down, was not Esau Jacob's brother, I have loved Jacob and I hated Esau, God is speaking specifically of the nations that descended from that relationship, namely Israel and Edom. And in God's sovereign plan, God chose, and we got to be really careful with some Christians who've been in the church for a long time. This is a sticky point. God chose Abraham. Why? I don't know, he just did, but he did. He chose Abraham's son Isaac over Ishmael, and then Isaac's son Jacob over Esau, and then God chose or determined that people descended from Jacob would be his chosen people, we call them the Jews. And he loves the Jews in special ways more than he loves all the other nations of the earth. And we know in the New Testament that the Gentiles are grafted into that family. We come into that family when we accept Christ as Savior. Now, if you read the Bible, you look at that passage of Scripture, you go, that's not fair. Why does God choose some people over other people? Ready for this? Ready? Because he's God. Okay? And I am not. And it might not be fair, but it's God's world. And I live in it. And I live underneath his rules and his authority. And as as Isaiah says, chapter 55, verse 8, my thoughts, God's saying this, are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. And I'm okay with that. See, regardless of your stance on election, does man have a choice, or or does does man have free will, or does God choose, uh, that's not the issue. The issue here is that God is highlighting the future in Romans chapter 9, where he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, that he chose the nation of Israel to serve him, and the church as well, those who believe in him, to save as a display of his sovereign grace and love. The question on the table is, whose side are you on? 
Because the message of the gospel will either harden your heart like Pharaoh or it will soften it to come on your knees in allegiance to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless towards him. In love he predestined, chose us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's a hard verse. So the first thing for me to overcome apathy, especially as a Christian, ready for this? Is to rejoice in the fact that I'm saved and that Christ knew before the foundation of the world that I would have free will to choose him too. I don't know how that works. My dad explains it like this. You're on a railroad track. There's a track on your left and a track on your right. But if you look up, they meet. How does that work? I don't know. But it works. So I rejoice in my salvation, and that's what he's begging the people to do, to come back over the fact that he does love them. Now watch, here's the second part. Esau is a better man than Jacob, but Jacob schemes his dad out of a family blessing, and Esau gets mad. No duh. <laughs> Both of them are sinners, though, and God chose Jacob and rejected Esau, and as Paul makes it clear, God did that before the twins were even born or had done anything good or bad. It was his choice. That's the first illustration. The second illustration in the text in verse four is that Israel and Edom received judgment from God at the hands of the Babylonians in the sixth century. But God repeatedly promised to restore Israel. So you got Israel over here and you got Edom over here and God says, I'm gonna save them and I'm not gonna save them. Ready for this? This is your response to this text because it's mine. That's not fair. I don't like it. As a human being, it makes me mad. Because you want to know why? Ready for this? You guys will love this. Because we like to have control. Right? But I want to be able to choose. And the sovereign God of the universe, hmm, who knows and chooses, I don't like that. Because that means that I am not the center of my own universe. And so apathy takes a turn because not only should we rejoice in it, but the solution number two to reject apathy is to let it humble us. Though it drives us to our knees in rejoicing that the fact that God has saved us, he did choose us. Well, it might not be fair in our eyes, it's very biblical. And what we believe about this matter says much about how we view God and his word because God is free to show mercy to whom he desires and he's free to harden whom he desires, even the fallen angels. And he doesn't owe mercy to anyone, but he offers it in his love. Now, Paul gives a great uh, explanation of this. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to in the book of Romans chapter nine. It's essentially as if the people looked at Paul and said, hey, Paul, uh, we're asking the same questions, okay, that community gospel is asking in 2018. And he says this, if you go to Romans chapter nine, verse 14, again, you don't have to turn there. Let me read it to you. Paul says, what shall we say then? Knowing this epiphany, is there injustice on God's part? I was thinking that. I was thinking the same thing. By no means, Paul says, for he says to Moses, I have mercy on who I have mercy. 
I have compassion on who I have compassion. And so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then God has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. But you say to me then, why does he still find fault in us? Who can resist his will? But who are you, oh man, human being, okay? Who are you to answer back to God? Remember Job's little problem that he had, right? And God kind of cracks down on Job. He's like, answer me, speak like a man. But will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 22, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patient vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, chose, known, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles." Whoa. Paul says, listen, you should rejoice in your salvation and it should humble you because when the gospel is preached, either the heart hardens toward it or the heart softens to it. Now, look at it like this. You have a basketball game. I found this illustration. I think it's good. Bethany said, I don't know. I'm going to do it anyway. If you have a basketball game consisting of visible and invisible players, wouldn't that be neat? right? Now, I knew there was a reason that Golden State won, okay? Invisible players. All right. Um, The ones who make the points are the visible players, and yet the invisible ones are there, and they're feeding the ball and strategy to the invisible players. Assume that the invisible players could act and interact with the visible players, or at least they could whisper signals and directions over the shoulders of the visible players, In this illustration, the invisible players would be controlling the action. But to the onlookers, those in the the audience, from all the onlooker could see, the visible players are in charge of the entire game. In this analogy, the visible players represent man's free will, while the invisible players represent God's spirit, angels, and demons. Visible and invisible are working and interacting together, and there is not some timeless, unchallengeable decree from God that governs man, but constant, loving help and direction from him, as well as hindrance from the enemy. The offering of salvation will either humble you to your knees and cause you to reject apathy, or it will harden your heart to the message that God has. That's not fair. That is the non-Christian wanting control. But to the Christian, we say, praise God from whom all blessings flow, that he knew before the foundations of the world that I had a choice and he chose me. How amazing grace is. So rejecting apathy is rejoicing in my salvation. It is humbling uh, on my knees in salvation. And then watch this, he's not done. Um, I lost Malachi. Um, So it says here in the rest of the passage, in Malachi chapter one, verse five, watch. 
Your eyes shall see this. What? What's this? That God knows, cares, loves, grants salvation, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. In other words, he extends it to others, us, the Gentiles. Now, I I, I thought about this. Great is the Lord and worthy of honor. Great is the Lord, now lift up my voice. Right? Now, that's an old song. My dad used to sing that, me awake to that when I was growing up. He would come in my bedroom and he would say, great is the Lord. And I'd be like, dad, seriously. Okay? But rejoicing in the salvation, ready for this, causes us to sing an excellent exaltation that God is good and he has saved us. How can I be apathetic when I know that great is the Lord? How can I be apathetic when I know that he chose me, a sinner, lost in destruction of self, saved me from that sin? How can I be apathetic in my relationship with God? Oh, I can't. I have to sing and shout and lift my hands. It's like your team scored a touchdown, right? It's like you wanted Golden State to win so bad. It's like you were cheering for the Capitals the whole way. That's the hockey league and basketball, and I know you're not into that, but it works if you are. Here's the ultimate thing. It should also spur us on. The preposition here does not mean beyond, uh, but over and above. And it stands in contrast with verse 4, where Edom is called the border of the wickedness. God's people should be bordered with the sounds of his praise. I think about this uh, in regards to Solomon. If you uh, ever want to know about Solomon, um, he writes in Song of Solomon, and that book's all about sex. And so, um, and it's a good book. Okay, God speaks more on sex than pretty much anything else. So if that makes you uncomfortable, you better get comfortable with it. Okay, because it has a lot to say about our relationship with God. But I love what Solomon says in Song of Solomon, chapter three, verse four. He says, speaking of his wife, I found the one my heart loves. And I think that's what Jesus says about us. If, if God, Jesus is here and we are here and we're having this counseling session and we say, how is your relationship with God? And you look at it and you say, eh, it's so-so. Jesus looks back at us and he says, I have found the one my heart loves. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to love you. I want to care for you. I want what's best for you. His hand is never a hand where he smacks us across the face. We exist to exalt his name because of his sovereign love towards us who deserved his wrath. And in spite of our many horrific sins, the gospel has been widely proclaimed. And if you know Christ as Savior and he has saved you, then proclaim his excellencies among the nations. That is his will and purpose. Malachi chapter 1 verse 11, if you go down farther in the text, it says, my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to the sun sets in every place. Incense and pure offering will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations. If that doesn't resonate with you, go to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and 10. You, believer, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people, and you had not received mercy, but what? 
Now you have. Now you have received mercy. Let me sum it up like this. Ready for this? Suppose a boy or girl desperately wants to play baseball, but he or she is not good enough to get picked for the team. You ever been there? Kind of hits close to home. One day, big brother comes in and is the captain of the team, and he picks his younger brother or sister to play on the team, not because he's the best player, just because he loves them. Man, what I wouldn't have done for a good brother and sister back in the day, right? How does the younger brother or sister respond? Well, they will want to play the best for the team because the older brother's loving choice. He will know or she will know that older brother has a purpose for them on the team. And so they will do all that they can do to fulfill their purpose. Consider the wonder that God chose you in love, has a purpose for you to fulfill his great plan of glorifying his name among the nations. Make certain about his calling and choosing you so that you will not stumble. And if you're unsure of whether or not he has chosen you a sinner, you can cry out for mercy to him today. You can come to Jesus for eternal life. Don't let it harden your heart. Let it soften it. As John chapter 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me, I will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And what about you, dear brothers and sisters, who find yourself apathetic? May you understand that you have a good burden from the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And may the weight of that burden cause you to rejoice in your salvation. May it humble you daily and may it spur you on to a life of godliness. Hmm. Let me pray for you.